where are my basketball fans in here? Yeah. In basketball? Yeah. Okay. Where are my San Antonio Spurs fans in here? There's a Spurs fan? I, I am definitely not a bandwagon rider. I, I, didn't even ask, I didn't purposely wear my Atlanta Hawks shirt. I just put it on. Then I'm thinking about talking about basketball tonight. The Hawks are terrible. The Spurs, on the other hand, I mean, you guys as Spurs fans, you've been along for a pretty good ride. This year was kind of iffy with the whole Kawhi, you know, quit on the team thing. But you've had a good, good years of, of the big three of Tim Duncan and Ginobili and Parker. But before the big three, there was this guy. Y'all know who he is? Anybody? It's, I mean, it's in the 90s. Who is it? David Robinson. Called him the Admiral. He was the, he was the first big spur of the, of the new generation. And, man, he was he's a Hall of Famer. He's an amazing basketball player. Now, there was a three-year run kind of in the, in the uh, Admiral years before Tim Duncan came and, and all of that where the, the Spurs were great. Won the Midwest Division several times. In the course of three years, they, win, they won 100 more games than they lost. And like 176 and 70 or something right around there. So in the course of three years, they only lost 70 games. That's a, that's a pretty good record. And then I think it was like 95, 96, it was the year before they drafted Tim Duncan. Um, Robinson ended up with some back problems, and he missed the first 15 or 16 games of the season. Came, and, and the Spurs did terrible without him. Then he came back for six games, he went three and three, then he broke his foot, and he missed the rest of the season. So when they lost David Robinson, they went from losing 70 games over three years to losing 62 games in one. Now you think about it, sometimes, kind of where we're headed this, this evening, sometimes a small thing, a small thing can make a big difference. Like you got, what, like 13 guys on an NBA team, probably somewhere around there, 26 feet. All it took was one broken foot to go from 20-some-odd losses a, game, a year to 62 in one year. Sometimes something small. One guy being hurt can change a lot of things. And, you know, in suffering, that's what we've been talking about through this book of Job, sometimes suffering is that way. Sometimes it's a small thing that makes a big difference in a negative way. It might have been one choice. Like, for example, you, I mean, you could you could choose this weekend, like for the first time ever, like you've never had alcohol in your life as an underage, you know, as a minor, you could drink alcohol at like one time, go out, get in a car, be in a wreck, kill somebody, life totally changed, right? I mean, sometimes it's one small decision. Sometimes suffering comes to us and it wasn't our decision. It wasn't our fault. Sometimes sickness comes or things like that and we're now in suffering or we're in tragedy because of something else that happened, but it doesn't take much. Sometimes a small thing can make a big difference. Let me give you another example. I saw Zane Hawks walking here earlier. Where's Zane at? Stand up for a second. So Zane is, this guy is an all-star, all-world offensive lineman. Like, I'm going to tell you this right now. I don't want to, like, meet Zane in an alleyway when he's mad at me, right? Zane, I would not pick a fight with Zane. It wouldn't go well. Ask Nate. Nate knows how that goes. Um, like, Nate tried to wrestle you one mission trip or something? Yeah, and, like, Nate's still walking with a limp, like, from that... So Zane, like, Zane's a tough dude. He's a lineman. I mean, he's, he spends Friday nights running into guys and hitting them hard. But you know what? You know what can take Zane down? An eyelash in his eye? Right? You ever had that? Like, like, you, like you guys, you've experienced that, right? A, a little tiny eyelash gets loose and it gets in your eye and you're, you're done, right? You're like, ah, you know, ah, and you're, you're rubbing your eye and they're going, don't rub and you're going, I got to. And you're like, look, you know, 
You're like, hey, I can't do anything. That one little eyelash, one small thing, shut you down, shut Zane down. Sometimes it can be something even more serious. Like, th this, is kind of, this is kind of scary. Like an air bubble. How dangerous is an air bubble? It's not. It's a bubble of air. I mean, it's pretty <laughs> self-explanatory there. I think I should have to explain that. But you get an air bubble in an artery or in your lung, and that little air bubble travels up through your body and causes a stroke or a heart attack. That air bubble, which could be harmless in any other situation, could be helpful if you were underwater, could kill you like that. Something small can make a big difference. But it doesn't always, it's not always negative. Sometimes there's some small things that are good that can change a bad situation. I want you to see this video um, of, of a homeless veteran that somebody stepped into his life and did one small good act. I want you to catch a glimpse of this story. We need sound though. guy that was homeless alcoholic and we don't know the end of his story but somebody said hey we're just going to do a makeover a simple small thing in the guy's life but you know what's even cooler the makeover was the focus of that i don't know if you noticed it and i don't know if maybe i was just reading into it but it seemed like to me the hug at the end was a little bit extended when was the last time you think 
that a guy who was homeless, probably hadn't showered, sat around on the street or in the street corner begging for money, had somebody come up and embrace him. Small thing. But you see the kind of difference it can make, just a little bit of hope into somebody's life. Well, we've been talking about suffering, and, and Job is a book of 42 chapters, I believe, 40-some-odd chapters of of suffering, and, and kind of like, wah, wah, you know, I mean, it's this negative Nancy-type story, but suffering is something that we all wrestle with. But here would be my question I want to pose out to us, because Bo, Bo kind of gave us a recap. We talked about the spiritual realm the first week. We talked about how do we come alongside a friend who's suffering last week. What if there's something, something small even, that if we were suffering could change the entire narrative? And I want to suggest you there is, and it's something called joy. Joy changes the narrative of suffering. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go to Job chapter 19. If you have uh, the Bible app on your phone, you can search live, and it should bring up Collide. I think I didn't try it tonight, and it'll, it'll bring Job 19 right up for you. You have announcements and all kinds of stuff. So if you go to the book of Psalms, there's a bunch of Psalms in the middle. If you go to the left a little bit, you'll find the book of Job. Job chapter 19, we're going to read this story, um, yeah, it's kind of ominous, isn't it? Ooh, yikes. We found out Job's history. Job was a great guy. Job was moral. Job was rich. He was one of the greatest men in the East. Chapter one, we found out God and Satan had this uh, conversation and God allowed Satan to take everything away from him. So Job lost all of his wealth. I'm doing a recap in case you missed the last two weeks. J lost all of his wealth, went from being rich to bankrupt had 10 kids, and all 10 of his kids died in one day. Then his body broke out with sores all over him. Job has had the worst experience. Last week we saw three of Job's friends show up on the scene. And Job's friends show up, and at first they do a great job. They practice the ministry of presence, and we talked about that. They came and they just sat with him for seven days and seven nights. Then if you've been reading two chapters of Job each day, like we talked about the first week, you're, you've probably already passed through this. You know it gets bad because Job's friends start talking. They start trying to give some explanations as to why this happened. Well, Job, I think all these bad things happen because you've sinned. Job, I think you, these bad things, God's punishing you because you have wronged him. Job's like, I, I don't think so. So in Job chapter 19, he's just had a conversation with one of his friends. And normally we don't read a whole chapter. Normally stick in a couple verses. But we're going to read this chapter I want you to see where Job is at and what his feelings are, okay? So let's look at Job chapter 19. In the first six verses, he's, he's talking to his friends, these guys that came alongside him. Here's what he says. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you've cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? He's talking to his buddies. And even if it be true that I've erred, my error remains in myself. If indeed you magnify yourself against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Here's the translation. This is what Job is saying. Guys, you're the worst friends I could possibly have. That's what he's saying. He, he, he's going, man, my life was in the pit. I didn't think it could get any worse. I lost all my money. I lost all my family. I've got sores. Right when I thought it was terrible, you guys showed up. And you ruined my life even more. Like, just, how about y'all just stop talking? Let, let God deal with me, because you guys are not helping me at all. Then he goes into verse 7. He says this. He says, behold, I cry out violence, but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there's no justice. It's like this. It's, 
he's feeling like he's wrong, like, like he's calling 911. That's what he says. I call out violence. Something bad has happened to me. And I'm calling for God. I'm calling for the authorities. Like if you were being robbed and you called 911, the police would show up today. He's going, something bad happened to me. I'm crying out, violence, God, show up. And he says, I dialed 911 and it just rang and rang and rang and rang and nobody picked up. I didn't do anything wrong. If anybody should get justice, it should be me. He says in verse 7, there's no justice. Now look at in verse 8 through 12. I want you to pick up on the imagery. So this is Hebrew poetry. would have been really beautiful written in Hebrew. We've got translated into English, but it still gives us this incredible picture of how Job feels. So I want you to put yourself in Job's spot to see how he feels about God. He says, he, God, has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He's built walls all around me, and he set darkness upon my paths. He stripped me from my glory, taking the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope, it's all he's got left is hope. My hope has he pulled up like a tree, roots and all, ripped it out of the ground. He's kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They've cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He says, not only are you all the worst friends ever, but God, God has taken the only thing I had left was hope and he, and he ripped it up out of the ground. God put me like in a wall. He put me in a box. And not only am I I'm in a box, I can't get out, but he, he like filled it full of darkness. I can't even see. Job is going, guys, I, you don't understand. I, I, my life is ruined. And he gives us this imagery. Then he goes and he talks in the next couple of verses about his friends, about his relationships, the people. You know, last week we talked about people coming along, us coming alongside people who are suffering. Here's how he feels about the people. Verse 13. He's put my brothers far from me. And those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as strangers. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives no answer. I must plead with them with my mouth for mercy. Look at verse 17. My breath is strange to my wife. I mean, his wife. And I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children, like little kids like everybody. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I love have turned against me. You think Job's having a good day? No! I mean, we can read it. Like, God's turned against me. I've got no one in my life, not even my wife. My kids are dead. The people who I used to invite in my house that I was kind to, they don't act like they know me. I see little kids. They're happy-go-lucky like everybody. I'm like, hey, and little kids trying to run from me. Ah! You know, he's going, I am utterly alone. He's having this bad, bad day. And in verse 20, not bad day, bad years. Verse 20 says, my bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? This is saying to his friends, why are, you, why are you guys trying? God's already mad at me. Why are you? And why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Verse 23, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. What words would he have engraved in rock? It's not these words that we've read of how miserable he is. I mean, Job is miserable. But 
I want you to see the small thing that comes out of the, the disaster situation. Look at how he finishes the chapter in verse 24, 25. After all of that, he says this, for I know that my Redeemer lives. At the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold, and not another. My heart thanks within me. Guys, here, here's the crazy thing. Job has suffered in a way that none of us have ever suffered. Now, okay, that's maybe not fair, because I don't know how you suffered. Here's what is fair. You have not suffered worse than Job, okay? You haven't lost 10 children. You haven't gone from rich to bankrupt. You haven't had sores bust out over your body. You haven't had every person that you know abandon you. And in the midst of all that, Job lays out for us how how miserable he is, how unhappy he is. And that's fair, right? I mean, that makes sense. But yet, in all of his misery and unhappiness, there's this thread of joy that runs underneath his life where he says, you know what? Even through it all, even though I've suffered through all of this, I know that I'll see God again. I'll see him face to face. I know that my Redeemer, the person who purchases me back out of this misery, is alive and well. How does someone get there? How does somebody go? You've seen stories before where people have entered tragedy, and some people enter tragedy, and their response to the tragedy is they get mad at God, they hate God, they're miserable, they're angry. I told you a story about the guy who lost his, his baby you know, last from 50 years ago, I told you that last week, angry for all those years? How does one person respond that way and another forgives, moves forward? Most of the time, it's something really small. It's called joy. See, here's the difference between joy and happiness. Don't get those two things confused. Happiness is circumstantial. If I gave you $100 right now, you'd be happy. It'd be a good circumstance. Joy, though, is not a circumstance or a response to a circumstance. Joy is this attitude and this, this thing deep inside of us. In fact, the Scripture calls it a fruit of the Spirit. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and the Scripture says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and some other things, but joy, you have joy inside of you. It may not be growing. It may not be watered. It may not be maturing, but it's there because the Holy Spirit's there. And what we learn throughout Scripture and what we see in Job's life is that if if joy begins to blossom in you, then circumstances are overcomable. Because joy runs like this deep current inside your life. It doesn't matter how the wind blows. It doesn't matter what's happening on the surface. Because on the inside, you're like Job that says, you know what? No matter how bad it gets here, I know my Redeemer lives. I know that God has got me taken care of. So we see it in this picture of Job's life. And we saw it coming anyway. Remember when Job was going through all that, his wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job said, shut your mouth. Like, no. Because there was something inside of him, this connection with God that changed the perspective on suffering. So as we talk about application, like I'm not going to give you some things to do, but it's just some things to, to consider. And the first thing is this. Put up that first one up on the screen. Joy changes for us because it's found, we find it in being able to see the eternal picture. Like, I think I got a passage of scripture. Hit that next one. You don't have to turn to it. It's a Hebrews, isn't it? 
So look what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now look what he says about Jesus. Here's what I want you to see. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and a seat at the right hand of the throne of God. If you know anything about the cross, we've talked about it in here before, that's not a good thing. Like anybody, I mean, just the very beginning. Like if I said, hey, here's what's going to happen to you tomorrow. When you go to school tomorrow, they're going to strip your neck in front of everybody. You wouldn't go to school. You'd be like, uh-uh, uh-uh, I'm not dealing with that. I don't, I don't want to be on Snapchat in that way. Mm-mm. Jesus was stripped naked in front of everybody. That was a precursor to the cross. Then he was whipped with, with a whip that had bone and, and, and sharp rocks and things like that that was dragged back across his back. His body was all ripped to shreds, literally. Crown of thorns pressed down on his head, piercing into his, into his, his face beaten with a rod then i mean that wasn't even the cross then we get to the cross and they take it they take a giant nail and hammer it into his wrist and pin him to a piece of wood lift him up and when you died on the cross you died from suffocating to death because you couldn't you got so weak you couldn't pull yourself up and so you felt yourself losing the ability to breathe and you died does that sound joyful no but, but the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Jesus had joy in that because here's why. It goes back to what we said earlier. It's the eternal perspective. Jesus knew, hey, the cross is going to be terrible. It's going to be painful. I'm going to suffocate to death. But when I do, you and you and you and you are going to experience eternal life forever. You're going to be able to have a right relationship with God. And that's way down the road in 2019. And what Jesus would say, man, it's worth it. I'll go through all of this because I am so joyful about what is coming that's way down the road and more eternal. But for us, we get so caught up in our suffering that we, we, miss, we miss the perspective. I got, Shannon's helping me with something. Shannon, can you bring that up to me? So I want you, I want you to get a picture of this. Oh, man, I got a lot of that, don't I? Way more than I thought I had. That's good, though. I stole this idea from Francis Chan. This is not original. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Give it up for Shanna. I might mess up this whole set here. So here's the deal. We could, look, I mean, we could spread this out. Man, it's all, I mean, there's a ton. It goes all the way back out. You can't even see where it ends. So here, here's the point. We got all of this that you can't even see. And this red piece, this is our life. This is eternity. It keeps going and going and going and going and going and going and going. And we experience suffering in the midst of this. And we get so caught up that we forget that this is very small compared to all of that that keeps going. And when you have this eternal perspective that, hey, what I'm going through now might affect someone's eternity, that what I'm going through now, this suffering, actually makes me more like Jesus and, it, and the suffering here prepares me for all the great things all there. Does that make sense? 
It's a matter of perspective of saying, you know what? There's something more than just this life. And when you have that, joy makes sense. It changes your perspective and suffering begins something that joy can change. Here's the second thing, though. No one likes suffering. The thing is this, joy is found in knowing what suffering brings. Look at these verses. I didn't put them in the, in the app. James 1, this is the brother of Jesus. The brother of Jesus said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When you suffer, when you have bad experiences, James says, count it joy. What well, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But he says, you know that the testing of your faith, that, that, that struggle, that, that suffering, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when you're suffering, it's, it's actually making you more like Christ. It's making you spiritually more complete. But it wasn't just James. Paul said it in Romans. Hit the next one. Paul said in Romans 5, he says more than that, same idea. We rejoice in our sufferings. Makes no sense to us. Hey, you have leukemia. Woohoo! No. That's circums but, but, but leukemia is circumstantial. Can we be sad? Sure. Can we be angry? Absolutely. Can we be unhappy? Yes. But we rejoice. We have joy in our suffering because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So guys, I know suffering's bad. And I'm going to be honest with you. Real honest with you. I've prayed on multiple occasions a prayer that sounds similar to this. And it's kind of embarrassing. God, I want to, I want to be like you. Jesus, I want to be like you, but I don't want to suffer. Right? If you go to the Bible, you go to Scripture, and you start reading, what you find out is that's impossible. Because suffering helps us to identify with Christ and makes us more like him. So we don't like suffering. It makes us unhappy. But if we have joy, this little it can change the narrative of our suffering. It can change where we're headed, how we see it, how we experience it, and how we engage with it. There's a guy that worked for uh, the Wycliffe Bible Translators, and he was out in a, in a Muslim country where some people were doing some Bible translation work of taking the Bible and turning it into some dialects of Arabic for some people. And he was meeting with a young couple, young missionary couple, thousands of miles away from home, living in a country or in an area with 100,000 people, and none of them were believers. Most of them hadn't even heard the name Jesus. And they're there trying to build relationships with people, no, no church, no small group, nobody to walk with, living in a country that the average temperature was over 100 degrees every day. The, the communities, the villages around them, full of disease and hunger. They couldn't even, like, contact lots of people because the country they were in was one of those countries that they couldn't tell people where they were. Totally isolated. And the guy who worked for Wycliffe Bible Translator said, I was in their home, understanding all of that, and also knowing this young couple had three kids all under the age of five trying to do this missionary work like that. And then he saw the baby. And the baby had pox marks all over its body. And so he asked, it's just out of that kind of his American experience, he said, oh, did your baby have chicken pox? And they said, no, those are ant bites. We can't keep the ants off of them. 
He said, but the doctors say, because it's very common in where they live, the doctors say that he'll develop an immunity to it and, and he'll grow out of it. And so here's this guy, he's looking at this couple. And he says, I'm sitting inside their, their house. And when I, I ask him, hey, how can I pray for you? We live in 100 degree heat. People, there's food and disease all around us. We got no other believers around us. We got no church home. We can't tell anybody where we are. Our baby's got ant bites all over him. He said, how can I pray for you? Here's what the, the mom said, the wife. She said, well, just pray for us because I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit stressed from time to time. What? And he walked out of the experience and he came back to his American way of life and started seeing all the people who, quote, unquote, suffered and how miserable they were and how life was terrible. He said, I look back at this couple and the time I spent in their home, he said, the vast majority of the time spent with laughter and joy and happiness that they were right where God called them to be. Their experience to me sounds like suffering. They had joy. And joy changed the narrative of the story of suffering. So here's what I want to leave you with. Most of us in here probably aren't suffering. But you know what that means? It's just coming. That's what it means. Because <laughs> life has suffering in it. You'll, you'll, you won't walk through life and never suffer. You will. Maybe at various stages, some more than others, but you have suffering around the corner. If you're going to make it through and have this eternal perspective changed and, and life, you, you be able to walk through suffering and, and use it for what God intended to be, you need that joy that the Holy Spirit's implanted in you already to grow now. You don't want to experience suffering and then have to start to try to find joy. Have the joy now. And how do you do that? You start growing to be more like Jesus every day. You're doing the